1: Dost thou not bring me letters from the friar? How doth, my lady, is my father well? How fares, my Juliet, that I ask again? For nothing can be ill, if she be
2: well. Then she is well, and nothing can be ill.
1: Her body sleeps in Capel's monument, and her immortal part with angels lives. I saw her laid low in her kindred's vault, and presently to post to tell it you. Oh, pardon me for bringing these ill news, since you did leave it for my office, sir. Is it, in? so? Then I defy you, stars. Hello, and welcome to The Plays The Thing. You have joined us for Act 5, the final act of Romeo and Juliet. My name is Tim McIntosh. I'm Heidi Waite. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And we're so glad that you have joined us, but I'm not sure that you should be glad that you have joined us because we are entering <laughs> into like one of the saddest acts of all of Shakespeare, maybe in all of Western letters, the conclusion of the story of Romeo and Juliet. Heidi, Sarah Jane, are you ready for this?
0: I don't know. A descent into the grave. Like I said, every time I read this play, I'm like, maybe this time, maybe this time. Maybe we'll it'll be different this other. time. Maybe Sarah this Jane, time, are you ready?
2: I'm heavy at heart. I, I mm-hmm. read five sources for the play. So I've oh, read the ending Lordy. five times. And oh I've my watched, goodness. Sarah I watched Jane. the Zeffirelli again. So I'm, I'm kind Jane. of saturated with the, the double tragedy. Wow. You're, You're going to need
0: to read some suffering. P.G.
2: Woodhouse or something.
0: Yeah, <laughs> really? antidote?
2: What's the antidote?
1: <laughs> so the story at this point, you guys, is very simple. Uh, Juliet and Romeo have been separated. Juliet, at the behest of Friar Lawrence, has drunk a potion that's going to put her in a coma-like state while Romeo is banished. Romeo is going to join her He's gonna kind of rescue her from her family's crypt and they're hopefully gonna live happily ever after. But the kind of threadbare plot just unravels really quickly because we'll find out a little bit into this act that the letters that Friar Lawrence has sent to Romeo have not arrived yet. Um, And so Romeo is kind of waiting when his friend or his man Balthazar shows up. That's the audio that we heard at the top of the program. Balthazar telling Romeo, Hey, Juliet is gone. She's with her family buried in the tomb. And of course, Romeo um, makes a plan to go to be with her, but first he's going to get his own potion that he can drink while he's there. Um, And so the majority of this act happens either outside the tomb or inside the tomb. That's where we are, you guys. That's what's going on. But at the top of the act, oddly enough, Heidi Romeo is happy. He's like in a good mood at the beginning of this act. Can you like remind us what happens to get Romeo in a good mood at the top of Act Five.
0: It's a valid question because Romeo has been pretty much down in the dumps for quite a while. Quite a while. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, at the at the top of the act, he greets his man Balthazar's ballet essentially with just these buoyant spirits. He says that he is uh, full of what are his exact words, and all the same unaccustomed spirit lifts me above the ground with cheerful thoughts why we might ask here's romeo's explanation Mm. because he had a dream that juliet found him dead and kissed him back to life a very very fairy tale like uh kind of vision right and an interesting kind of inversion of a fairy tale like his dream is that he's the he's He's the sleeping he's beauty. The pr- yeah, yeah, yeah. And she he's the is beauty. the She's awakening, the, princess, the awakening power. Um, and because of that, his he he's happy, and he's waiting for letters that have been promised to him from the friar. He seems to have gotten over his, um, you know, a less charitable person than I am. Of course, I'm not saying this. I'm just saying somebody might say he had a temper tantrum in Act Four. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> so
0: I. I mean, do we accept this explanation, Sarah Jane? Is this why
2: Romeo is happy? What do you make of this moment? I think it's really troubling and problematic. And mm-hmm. that, so for a start, it's a soliloquy. So Balthasar hasn't come in yet. So he's speaking to himself. That's true, you're right. I find it really poignant, actually, because it's more, it's more apparent than real. He says, if, so act five begins on this conditional, if I may trust, um, and the dream that he's had obviously is macabre and very, very um, morbid. This idea that he will die, which is what happens very soon. We hear that the spirit of joyness is unaccustomed in him and it has lifted him above the ground briefly. But the idea is that normally he, he plods on the earth. And he says, Ah, oh me, how sweet is love itself possessed when but love's shadows are so rich in joy. So again, it's an admission that he's living in just in the kind of outer penumbra of, of the light of love. And um, I feel it's like a desperate attempt by him to lift his spirits.
1: Hmm.
2: And then Balthazar comes in with this terrible news. So Shakespeare's managed to kind of create a sense of hope where there isn't really any, and then it comes crashing down immediately.
1: But it's a great is, where is he when craft? he says
2: this? Is he in a sort of, is he in a cell? Is he, you know, is he outside?
1: And he, he immediately, after talking with Balthazar, finds an apothecary. So like, is he hanging out on the corner outside of the drugstore is kind of, you know, is that where he is? I, I want to pause penumbra. Well done, Sarah Jane. I, I love know. the word penumbra. Great word. She also said, Heidi, how do you say the word M-A-C-A-B-R-E? Did I just misspell it? Macabre. macabre. Right. Sarah Jane said macabre. And whenever like there's a difference of pronunciation- I just I think we think, should
0: absolutely defer to Sarah Jane. And Exactly. Every,
1: every single time. Exactly. I think the exact same thing. Yep. I'm like, they've had the language a touch longer than we've had they must be doing it right. (laughs) Why do I say macabre? What's wrong with me? Except with, this is the exception though. This is what English people think. I've lived a long
0: time in England and they say chicken fillets instead of filet.
1: That's a problem, Sarah Jane. Can you talk to your people about that? That's That's your your thing. It's
0: a double L. (laughs)
1: She came prepared. It's like she's waiting for us. She's like, I've got a defense. Here's my apologia pro vita fillet.
2: Yeah. It's a fillet.
1: It's a fillet. fillet.
2: It's not a fillet. Fillet. It's, uh, it's not an, an iambic word. Yep. It's trochaic.
1: It's trochaic. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I should have never brought it up. I was like, I'm going to lose this fight. Even though I like am smart enough to not participate in the fight, I'm smart enough to not actually get in a fencing fight with someone who's an expert. I still lost, even though i <laughs> I'm Hey, by the way, did you guys catch why the letters did not arrive? Sarah Jane, did you catch why the letters did not arrive to Romeo from Friar John? Just a little bit of-
2: yeah, I think there was um, a government-enforced national lockdown surrounding <laughs> yeah. Verona. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was COVID-19. Yeah, they were trying to stop the spread. Yep, that's right. 15 days to flatten the curve.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, Friar
1: they were, J- they were flattening the curve. Yep, Friar John. And Romeo was, and Juliet got flattened. flattened the they right. sure did, yeah.
0: Yep, it was a small price to pay, though, to keep those numbers down. So
1: I, just, I, I couldn't help but notice it. Like, Friar John got quarantined. We just hey. have to mention that. That's right. Because
0: you know why? Romeo is fortune's
1: fool. Okay. It's I'm a- going to bring this up. I'm going to bring this up at the end, Heidi. Uh-huh. We have been talking- This should
0: be your point throughout number one. podcast,
1: Yes, it actually is. No, actually point number one. First, let me kind of like set the stage. Um, we have been talking throughout this podcast about whether or not Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy of character. In other words, they have character flaws that- they're going to be kind of punished for in the way that Lear's hubris punishes him and like estranges him from his family, causes bloodshed. The question we've raised over and over on the show, and we're going to finally answer it now in act five is whether or not Romeo and Juliet is a character tragedy being punished for their character flaws, or whether it's a tragedy of a numbers, another sword. We, there's no debate whether or not it's a tragedy of some sort. I, I'm going to argue we've got, we're we dealing with a tragedy of fate. It's a tragedy of fate. It's there's something almost planetary happening, almost like there's some sort of like divine guidance, not a malevolence, but just um, Romeo and Juliet are caught up in some sort of conflict that is so far beyond their control and has very, very little to do with their own characters. They just kind of got caught. They're gristle for the grist for the mill. But let's talk about that. You're right, Heidi, that I did notice that line and I am gonna bring it up. But let's talk first about from Juliet and Romeo's point of view, why do they kill themselves? So I'm gonna ask you first, Sarah Jane, I'd like to hear what you think also, Heidi. So. After Romeo procures the poison from the apothecary, he goes to the tomb where Juliet, he believes, is buried. She's actually kind of in a coma-like like state. There he meets Paris. Paris believes that Juliet is dead and he blames romeo for it you know romeo is the one who caused her to take his own life and now raise your sword you monster i'm going to lay you low and and romeo tries to warn him you know it's not what you think it's not what you think but paris won't take no for an answer and so romeo says okay here it is and so romeo kills paris then he takes paris into the tomb with him which i thought was a peculiar decision Romeo goes in, he finds Juliet. We have little hints that she's not really dead. He has this, okay, this wonderful line. Romeo, death hath sucked the honey of thy breath, hath no power yet upon thy beauty. Thou art not conquered. Beauty's ensign yet is crimson in the lips and in thy cheeks, and death's pale flag is not advanced there. She's still rosy. She's not pale you know, death's pale flag is not advanced there. Romeo takes the potion, he dies, Juliet wakes. And there's a funny kind of exchange with Friar Lawrence, but we'll talk about that for a second. And she, she takes her own life. Sarah Jane, why?
2: Well, let's look at Romeo first. It seems that the first reason is that Juliet is light. And to be with Juliet is to escape from the darkness that is his life and to mm. enter into this kind of celestial beauty that she's still emblematic of. The other reason, which is tied into that is that he's, he is jealous. He's a jealous husband of Juliet and he is envious that death has taken his wife and is with her and is lying with her. And he wants to um, possess her again. So he, he, he sees it as a kind of possessive move, I think, to take back his wife from mm. the grip of death. And it's also partly a rebellion. It's a rebellion against fate. He says, Here will I set up my everlasting rest and shake the yoke of inauspicious stars from this world wearied flesh. So it's mm. as if he's this ox that's been set mm. in a furrow that he's been plowing with, with the stars. Um, kind of driving him along in a direction that he didn't want to go. And he says, that's enough. I take it into my own hands now. And this is where it stops. I'm I'm stopping here with Juliet. So those are, I think, the reasons why he kills himself. But aside from that, it's obviously because he doesn't know that she's about to wake up. Right, right. She's dead is the other reason. And then for Juliet, well, she is at a loss without her Romeo and it was interesting. I watched the Zeffirelli finale earlier today, and her final speech is so cut. Mm. She she says hardly anything, and um, it kind of takes away from from w- what she goes through because to kill oneself by stabbing is a very violent act and very difficult to commit. So she she shows. Powerful energy and resolution here, having just come out of a coma that she's been in for two days to do this. And having read a few of the other endings, in many of them, what's written is that Juliet simply holds her breath and dies. And in one of them really? it says she gathers up her spirits and um, gives up the ghost. So she, she literally just wills, like her wills own death herself to death. Yeah.
1: So, so these are in some of the kind of sources that Shakespeare borrowed from, stole from, in order mm-hmm. to write his own Romeo and Juliet. And do you know, Sarah Jane, and how many of those sources does she just kind of will her own death?
2: That's in the, that, that's in about three of them. And then in the last two, the the dagger is introduced and that language that her body will be the sheath for Romeo's dagger, which has a kind of sexual connotation as well. Mm-hmm. So she does it because she she's married to him and she can't bear the thought of being married to Paris instead. And she actually says, I'm going to do this because I, and it's in all of the sources. In fact, she says, I don't want any, anyone else to enjoy me. My love is entirely for Romeo. Mm. And I, I, give, she says something like I give you my soul. I give you my spirit. I commit myself to you forever. So she does it out of loyalty. Yeah. Which once again is a contrast between them, right?
0: It's, with, mm. with Romeo, he is killing himself out of despair mm. and she is killing herself with a posture of action, right she is she is taking her uh, her destiny into her own hands, whereas he is kind of passively receiving this like fortune's full identity and then, killing himself out of despair. It's a really interesting, just the language of their final speeches even, and the, the ways in which they kill themselves kind of have that same contrast, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: It's interesting that Romeo's, uh, Shakespeare's Juliet doesn't say as much as, as some of the previous um, <clears throat> sources that actually it's so obvious what Heidi's just said about Juliet committing herself to love because it's there in the action of the play and in her deathless love. She doesn't need to say it. Whereas in the other sources, she has this speech in which she says, I'm doing this because I love Romeo. But as Heidi said, this one, it's, it's just clearly this action
1: that she does. Because we've seen that throughout the throughout the play previous to this moment, Shakespeare doesn't need to insert himself the in and say like, hey, just in case you guys are wondering, this is why Juliet is going to take her own life. Like it seems abundantly clear by the time we get there. Is that, Is that—is that what you guys are saying?
2: That's what I meant, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Friar Lawrence is there when Juliet wakes from this coma-like state and Sarah Jane, he, this is a peculiar part of the play. He leaves her, you know, he's kind of orchestrated this whole thing. Now Romeo is dead. Juliet wakes. And did that jar you at all? The fact that he left Juliet in this moment?
2: I found it really shocking and I'd, I'd even forgotten that there's this interruption in the mm. moment between her waking and, and finding Romeo, that she actually has a conversation with the friar. Poor girl. She's been out cold for a couple of days. She wakes up in a vault. She is immediately greeted by the friar who offers her to go and live in a nunnery. He, offers, he says, I'll take you away to a convent. And she's hardly had a chance to figure out where she is. And she says, no, I'm not coming now. I just need to kind of sit here and figure out what's going on. And it's not even clear in the text if she has seen Romeo's body at this point or not. I think a director could decide whether she has seen him and not said anything about it. But all the friar says is, I dare no longer stay. I dare no Mm. longer stay. And he goes and leaves her on her own. So I thought that perhaps it was uh, a dramatic device which shows that she isn't mad. She's, she's had a sort of lucid conversation with the friar. Romeo, when she sees him, is not a figment of her imagination. The audience knows that she's lucid. And when she acts finally to kill herself, she hasn't done it in a fit of desperation or madness. She's made a decision. Yeah, yeah It.
0: It is such a strange moment. I find it so interesting.
2: You said that this was also in the source texts, um, right, Jane? You said all of them? Yes. Is that right? Yeah, it's in all of them. And it's not only Fry Lawrence in in most of the source texts, it's also Peter or Pierre, who is Romeo's man, the equivalent of Balthazar. So they're okay. both there talking to her and they both leave her. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a moment that Um, beggars belief a little bit,
0: like that, that the friar would leave her under, under those circumstances, especially with such a flimsy excuse, right? He hears a noise, like, so he just leaves. It is of course necessary to get him off stage so that Juliet can kill herself without interruption. So I understand that, but it just doesn't, I don't, doesn't seem like there's enough of an explanation given within the text to kind of make that moment meaningful in any way it kind of feels like it derails there. Um especially considering his courage later in owning his role uh when he talks to the prince and he's like I essentially he says like I did this. And then he is let off the hook by the prince who is fair and just. Mm-hmm. Um so for him to just be scared by a noise uh, so I, I find that interesting. I was thinking, trying to think of even about it allegorically earlier. Like, I'm wondering if there's something about like, is it like reason deserting her or, you know, something like that, that has some kind of allegorical significance to like the fry what the friar represents, kind of leaving, fleeing from her in that moment when she kills herself. But even that felt really flimsy to me in my own head. So anyway, I don't know if it's mm-hmm. a flaw as much as it is just like a, one of those,
1: He's a not ex- stage. Yeah, direction. like he's not
0: expecting it to be read in classrooms for all of eternity. He's just writing a play, right? So maybe he just didn't give it enough of an explanation. He had to get him off stage. So he had him hear a noise. Oh, I'll make him hear a noise, you know. So
2: well, he he didn't even have to make it up. It was yeah. it was in the sources. He, I suppose, mm-hmm. we're criticizing him for not cutting it. Exactly. Yeah, or changing yeah. So, it. Yeah. But I like your idea, Heidi, that it's somehow maybe a symbolic allegorical departure the the departure of religion perhaps that she turns her back on oh, the church, yeah commits herself to this idolatry that we spoke about last yeah. week
1: after he leaves the whole town basically shows up soon to the town uh, including the prince and friar lawrence is charged with recounting the whole story to the prince and the prince kind of uses this moment to point out the fact that both of these families are being punished in the deaths of their children right. I want to hear the audio of the very very end of the play we're going to hear the prince and then Father Capulet and Father Montague in the last lines of the play
2: where be these enemies Capulet Montague See what a scourge is laid upon your hate, that heaven finds means to kill your joys with love. And I, for winking at your discords too, have lost a brace of kinsmen. All are punished.
1: Oh, brother Montague, give me thy hand. This is my daughter's jointure, for no more can I demand. But I can
2: give thee more. For I will raise her statue in pure gold, That
0: whilst Verona by that name is known, There shall no figure at such rate be set As that of true and faithful Juliet. As rich a Romeo's by his lady's lie, Poor sacrifices of our enmity. A glooming peace this morning with it brings. The sun, for sorrow, will not show his head.
2: Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punish it. For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo.
1: That was the Prince. Go hence to have more talk of these sad things. Some shall be pardoned and some punished for never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Heidi, I've got a question for you. Uh, What if this is, after all, a character tragedy? What if our characters are being punished for their character flaws? But what if it's not Romeo and Juliet who are being punished, but instead it's the houses, the Montague and the Capulet houses that are being punished? Because isn't that what the prince says here? Mm. That, you know you're all being punished. You you brought this on yourselves. And if, if there's something that we're supposed to learn from this play, is that what we're supposed to learn? That the Montagues and Capulets are being punished for their flaws, Heidi?
0: I think it's a question everybody has to ask in reading this play, because this is not just a private play. It's not just about Romeo and Juliet. It is they exist within a larger context within a community, and and the play draws attention to that, even in the opening prologue by civil blood made civil hands unclean. This is not just a character study, this is, or a love story. It is a a, a commentary on an entire society, and mm. we do have these uh this very very violent society with a. a violent clash between these two families that essentially can't even remember what they fought about, but are willing to sacrifice the younger generation to assuage their wrath. Um, mm. We learn in this scene that Lady Montague has died out of, out of grief over Romeo's exile. And so yet another one bites the dust, right? right. Like the body count is, it building. is just piling and piling. And I think incidentally just, uh, before we, we continue talking about the nature of the tragedy, I, I keep wondering about the love of Romeo and Juliet and, and kind of some of the conventions of Shakespearean comedy and tragedy. Shakespearean comedy has often has what we call a green world. And we've talked about that, right? In which there's there's this place that the characters can disappear to to get out of the foibles and violence or whatever of the, of the surrounding society. And uh, in Romeo and Juliet, we have maybe the most violent society that's built by Shakespeare. Hmm. Uh, other than maybe, you know, some of the the ancient tragedies. We have that in Coriolanus, I guess, and
1: Antony and Cleopatra. Maybe Titus Andronicus and is a rival for That's it, a yeah.
0: slightly violent right, horror know. film. Right. Uh, but it's a very, very violent society that we have here, characterized by violence and by hate, um, by quarreling and by grudge holding. Um, and these are the upper class members of this society. And the entire, all of Verona is tainted by this con- Conflict between these, um, between these families and Romeo and Juliet, who are the inheritors of this. They, they're both the single heir of their family. They are the inheritors of this family conflict as well as their family's riches. They resist it by creating their own world, right? They, they mm. have created their own world of peace, their own green world, so to speak with their love, which I think is part of the, one of the, um, the more public explorations of this play. It's mm. all, every, you know, all of Shakespeare can be interpreted on multiple levels. And in, uh, in our conversations, we've kind of stuck with that one-on-one kind of interpretation th- about the individual characters, but it does exist within a larger societal context. And so one of the things that we have is this like very violent, dysfunctional society um, characterized by, you know, Civil blood, bloodshed, um, and hatred. And yet, these two inheritors of that very bloodshed and hatred are the ones seeking peace. From each other and creating mm. their own kind of green world, their own space where they can be at peace. And that's taken from them here in this act, which which I think if you look at it in that way, you look at then Romeo and Juliet as victims of the inherited tragedy and dysfunction of the society. And in their very best of intention, how 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 lovely it is that they have sought refuge and sought freedom from that inherited dysfunction pathology, really through falling in love. And so if we do look at it as a character tragedy of the society, yes, absolutely. It's Montague and Capulet who are to blame for what happened to their children.
1: Mm. Heidi, at the end of the last show, you put forward an idea that I've been thinking about in the week since we recorded Act 4 about the idea that maybe Romeo and Juliet, maybe this is a character tragedy, and Juliet and Romeo are being punished for certain flaws, but the flaws that we mentioned previous to you talking about this idea were things like, you know, Romeo can be rash and maybe, I don't know, Juliet can be petty. They were, you know, they seemed like trifling complaints that we might have against their characters. But what you put forth is that if this is a character tragedy, perhaps the flaw is that is idolatry. It's that Romeo and Juliet have kind of created gods of each other and Mm -hmm. worshiped. And we get like hints of this at the conclusion of act one, when they're kind of completing each other's thoughts in this beautiful soliloquy and they're um, asking for the other to take sins away, you know? And so there's this, there's definitely, I can see, yeah, there is kind of like an idolatry going on. Mm -hmm. Having reached the end of the play again, Heidi, what do you think about that, the theory that you put forth that maybe they are guilty of the character flaw of, worshiping each other
0: right is there love an idolatrous love again like i said last week i think i said the question to me of the play is always not whether or not is is it's never is there love real it's always is there love good and Mm. and that is that's a question i still haven't completely settled uh and i like i kind of like that i like kind of the unsettled feeling of that because i think you can make a case from the text um again i always say to my students any you know you can interpret this it's not a math problem you can interpret it but you have to be able to defend it from the text i think you can defend from the text that that this is a a moral failure of idolatry and that that is what has cost them because they're impatient because they rush because they don't listen because they they have held each other up as i mean juliet even says flat out that romeo is quote the god of her idolatry mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. they there is no question that they hold each other and their love up as the light, right? That's the recurring motif, uh, the, the m- recurring metaphor they use for each other as one of light, celestial light, hmm. um, not the light of God shining through. It's not that through Romeo, Juliet can better see God and is thus enabled to love him righteously, but that she's bypassing any other light and only looking through at life through the lens and through the light of what this man is providing for her, so um, you can make the case that that is I think the the failure of the play that the the character flaw and tragedy of the play is their idolatrous love. However, I don't think that the play adequately punishes them for that even then because in their death they reckon through their love and death they reconcile this great wound within their society and so their love does indeed bring a great redemption not in their own lives Mm -hmm. but in the lives Mm -hmm. of the society it heals the society not just their death but their love because the reason we know that is because to your point, Tim, we have a giant body count. We have many, many people dead. And so it's not the death that brings about the salvation of this town and of the healing of the society, but Roman Juliet's love. And in such case, I do not I, I think it's too simplistic then to say that their love is merely idolatrous and thus needs to be judged and punished, because I think Shakespeare brings something truly enduring and redemptive out of their love. So it is one of those things that I yeah. I think you can make a case for, but I don't think it adequately question answers all the
1: questions of the play. Yeah, Sarah Jane, having thought about Heidi's idea last week, what do you think? Character tragedy, something else happening in this play?
2: There's so much going on at the ending, and and. There's a great deal that Heidi's just spoken about that I want to respond to. So I hope I can do that thinking in paragraphs and being coherent. Um, So let me attempt that. So let's begin with the idea that Heidi ended with, which is that their love heals the state. Now, the question I have there is Have they really learned anything about idolatry from mm. their children? Because what does question. Montague do? He makes gold statues he makes a statue. of Romeo and Juliet and they put them up in the middle of the town that's to be worshipped. So I think that that's problematic. It's not as if they repent and are, are then looking for salvation beyond the universe. They look to Romeo and Juliet themselves as idols, they then become set in gold in the middle of the town. And this, this I think, is really interesting in Lerman's production because it's set in Los Angeles. And at the beginning, we have the statue of Jesus.
1: Right, arms spread of, over the city. Yes,
2: and by the end, Romeo and Juliet have replaced him. Mm. So that's one thing I like about that film. So, mm. so I would just, I would be interested in that idea um, and that perhaps things are not quite as knitted up as we would like them to be at the end of the play. And of course, the prince does say... Some shall be pardoned and some punished, punished, you know, that gets a final um, stress on the word to to show how hard and harsh this is going to be. And that there will be state violence now after the end of the play. Mm. So going back to what Heidi was saying about, um, in a way, the individuals triumphing over the state here, I think that's an excellent idea. And she said that they created their own green world. And I want to say the same thing, but coming at it from a slightly different angle. So if we think about the role of Greek tragedy, it was to instruct citizens to behave and obey the state and worship the polis. What happens at the end of Romeo and Juliet is actually a reversal of the didacticism of Greek tragedy, Shakespeare has flipped it on his head because what he's done is he's, rather than having an individual like, say, like Pentheus in the back, the back eye, getting punished for striving against the state and failing, what you have are two individuals who have strived against the the state, triumphed in their love, and the state then gets punished. All Mm. the other people are made to feel as if they have done something wrong and that they must learn a lesson. And I think that's really interesting and what a triumph for Shakespeare to have flipped um, tragedy on its head in that way, in that it's, it's not the lovers who are being taught a lesson. It's everybody else. Yeah That's amazing, really. And so I think one of the reasons for that also might be because in England, in the Renaissance, even in the, the golden era of, of Queen Elizabeth, there is so much state-sanctioned violence you walk over London Bridge and there would be people's heads on stakes. There would be pub brawls. There would be um, fencing and fighting in the streets all the time. So how, as a dramatist, do you take violence and make it interesting and spectacular and dramatic for the stage when people see it all the time? So Shakespeare flips it again by getting these lovers to do violence on themselves and, and stealing from the state to the spectacle of violence and making it their own. And I think that, again, so there's a kind of double triumph there in the way that this drama has worked. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to say is, um, at the end, the prince says, a glooming peace this morning with it brings the sun for sorrow will not show his head. Mm. And of course, at the beginning of the play, Romeo has told us Juliet is the sun, and she won't rise again on this town. So rather a brilliant ending. But, they're, they're, but also quite ambitious, I think we can acknowledge, quite an ambitious ending Very. in terms of its drama.
1: The prince even points the finger at himself during his last talk with Capulet and Monique, Um And I, for winking at your discords too, have lost a brace of kinsmen, all are punished. And it's, a gr- it's, a, it's an amazing point that you're making, Sarah Jane, that um, yeah. The Greek tragedy in many ways was an outreach of the state. It was funded by the state. They they would position the future young rulers on the front row and kind of put them um, in the position of having to figure out how to solve these ethical quandaries that were being put on the stage. But it's true that the state was not just the Funder, but also kind of like the beneficiary of what was being put on the stage. And now Shakespeare has kind of reversed it. The 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 innocent ones are this couple. The guilty ones are all of us that stood around Hmm. winking at your discords, you know. It really remarkable, a really remarkable change a flip of of uh roman i mean greek tragedy in some ways though the play does harken back to a certain aspect of greek tragedy Mm -hmm. i'm thinking about oedipus rex in particular oedipus rex is not guilty in a way of killing his father and sleeping with his mother he does both of those things in ignorance And so what you have in Oedipus Rex is this kind of sense that the stars have aligned to kind of rectify the impurity that has become Oedipus's life. And they're doing it by sending a plague. The gods have sent a plague upon his town. And it must, the only way to really rectify it is by having Oedipus come to see what he has done. But he's not guilty in a way that we think of guilt. It's more like a guilt of fate, something horrible and unnatural has happened, but it's not something horrible and unnatural that's done by volition, by will. And so in that way, I think of all of the references in Romeo and Juliet, to fortune, the stars, Romeo, is it even so? Then I defy you stars, Friar Lawrence, unhappy fortune, Romeo, I am fortune's fool, Juliet. Oh, fortune, fortune, all men call thee fickle. Romeo, writ with me in some sour misfortunes book. There's so many references to fortune doing them wrong, aligning against Romeo and Juliet. In that way, it reminds me of a Greek tragedy. But to your point, Sarah Jane, this is almost like an inversion of the Greek mode of teaching that the state is right. And we are here to kind of like uplift and uphold the state. No, the innocent ones are the ones who kind of are the victims of the state Mm. in this play.
2: And that's a picture of Renaissance humanism, isn't it? That man is the measure of all things.
1: Very much so. Very much so.
2: Yeah, agreed.
0: So Tim, would you argue that this is a play of chance or a fate? That this is that Romeo is right when he says when he cries out that he is fortune's fool.
1: I'm going to give you- He's not just
0: being whiny. Right
1: now. Yeah, I don't think he's just being whiny. I really do think there's something to this. I'm increasingly of the mind, Heidi, especially coming on the heels of our discussion of Richard II, that Shakespeare's plots kind of function in a way like two blades of scissors. Mm -hmm. You know, like one blade is- the kind of upper story plot of fate conspiring against Romeo and Juliet. The other blade on the scissors is ro- like just the actual plot of Romeo and Juliet falling deeper, deeper, and deeper into this conflict between their families until there's no escape and they're each, you know, dead in each other's arms in Juliet's tomb. And I, I, I don't see these like these two blades, they don't work against each other. They're actually, they kind of function together to accomplish the purpose, which is to tell just an absolutely stunning story, a heartbreaking story. So I, I would make the case, I think, that they are both fortunes fools, but I can't isolate that from Mm -hmm. the other blade, which is all of the actions of the play that existed before our play even opened on the streets of Verona, these two warring families. And I just, I I see Shakespeare, I, I think of Richard II, which we just talked about. There's this kind of upper story, what we call, Heidi, the metaphysical plot of Richard II being God's anointed kind of in the line of the divine right of kings. And then the other blade in that story is Richard II, the fool king, who kind of creates his own problems and ends up being forced from his throne by, you know, his successor, his, his kind of like violent successor, Bolingbroke. And more and more, I think of Shakespeare's tragedies as functioning in that as a kind of a dual apparatus plot, an upper Mm -hmm. plot and a lower plot. And boy, Hamlet really supports my kind of notion of this. There is such a strong sense in Hamlet that there is a metaphysical story happening while hamlet like on the ground on the stage is like a good old-fashioned revenge story it's a great revenge story and part of shakespeare's glory is that he manages to put in this upper story plot also at the same time and it's kind of tracking right along with this like spellbinding revenge plot but i'm getting too far ahead of myself because that's not until our next podcast
2: (laughs) (laughs) you guys um it's good
1: we're going to do a question and answer episode, but not until the PBS, PBS has released the national theater uh, version of Romeo and Juliet, which Sarah Jane has seen and has very politely refused to tell us anything about. No, actually, like I, I'm really looking forward to seeing it. And I love going into films, like not knowing exactly what they're going to do, but I want us to get together for the Q and a and to be able to discuss this production, um, the PBS for us, PBS production. Heidi, does that sound good to you guys?
0: That sounds great. So it's releasing in the United States right around Shakespeare's birthday because and we're not sure exactly which day that Shakespeare was born. I prefer to think that he was born on April 24th because that is my birthday oh. and all I want out of life is to share a birthday with William Shakespeare. It's more likely he was born on the 23rd or the 25th Uh, But that's when the 23rd is when it was when the um, production is uh, releasing here in the United States. So for our listeners, for Shakespeare's birthday, watch his this new Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And after it comes out, feel free to comment on uh, the Facebook page or wherever and really want to hear what you all think about it.
1: Definitely we do. So it's, it's never too early to start submitting your questions on the Close Reads discussion group. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at CloseReadsPods and via email at CloseReadsPodcasts at gmail.com. Sarah-Jane, closing thoughts about this, this wonderful play, this titan of a play?
2: I just wish that they had exercised patience a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's so yeah. many opportunities where if Romeo had just waited...
1: Yes, things might have, have been different. He could have swerved from the ditch. He didn't yes. have to get
2: Balthazar's message and then, in all haste, run to be at Juliet's tomb right. that night. And Juliet uh, could have gone and waited out in a in a convent for a bit <laughs> and see what. Right, and, right. You know, so right. Yes, but it's it's frustrating, isn't it? But uh, I think haste. Haste is, is a problem in the play. And I liked what Heidi said about haste also being symptomatic of idolatry because it's kind of wanting everything now and not willing to store up treasures in heaven.
1: Mm. Yeah. 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 Where moth and rust do not eat. Yeah. Heidi Mm -hmm. closing thoughts on Romeo and Juliet.
0: I, I'm just so grateful to have gotten a chance to have this conversation. I, I, I don't want to get all mushy, but man, I just love this play, and I just really, really learn so much from both of you. So thank you for letting. Yeah, thank Tim. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. What are you and kidding?
1: It's just it really so is. Awesome. These are such an education. You know, I I, yeah. I I always have kind of like thoughts, sometimes even like strong convictions about the play, and then. I talk about it with you guys and sometimes my convictions harden, but more often they kind of loosen and I see something different. Um, Right.
0: I think for me that, that, that speaks to Shakespeare's, I mean, immensity within the canon because it's, I think, so many of these plays as both of you have said in this podcast can have multiple levels of interpretation multiple modes of interpretation you know um and and there's something there's something special about Shakespeare that you can say yeah this is you know that that whole that whole image of the rabbit and the duck do you know what I'm talking about when like the picture is if you have it um what is it if it's horizontal it's a duck and if it's vertical it's a rabbit that's how much, that's how shakespeare is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know the play is both a tragedy of fate and a tragedy of character it's aristotelian and it's classical it's there's something very um soothing to me. I know that probably sounds really strange, but there's something very soothing to me about not having to be right about a text, but just being open and keep continuing to learn about it. Yeah. For example, what Sarah Jane said, Sarah Jane, when you said earlier about the, about um, is it Montague or Capulet who just wants to build? it's Montague who just says, well, I'll just build, then I will build a statue.
2: They both do. Yes. Each father does one and they put them together. Yeah. hmm.
0: That's. I mean, of course, that's an idolatrous act, right? That's not a redemptive act mm. within the context of 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 this play, or is it? Right? Is it intended to be kind of a monument of memory, or right. is it intended to be a mon or a, an idol of worship? And that is, depending on how you interpret that, which Shakespeare doesn't tell us, then the entire play changes. And I, I think that that's just so, so wonderful about Shakespeare. And I just want to talk about him for the rest of my days. Yeah, That's my final thought. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's great. That's great. Um, please, everyone, having finished Act 5, please submit questions for our Q&A episode. We would love to hear from you. So those are some of the most enjoyable and also most challenging podcasts that we do, the Q&A episode of the conclusion. Um, and you can do that via the Uh, Close Reads page on Facebook. So, Sarah Jane and Heidi, we will see you guys next week. Listeners, we're going to leave you with one final song. Anyone who can post all of the artists and names of the song on Facebook gets a special shout-out during the Q&A episode. So, thank you for listening and enjoy our outro.